0: Well, good morning, Vista. How's everybody doing? Good. That's awesome. That's great to hear. Now that we don't have the 8 o'clock anymore, you guys are pumped by 9. Am I right? Let's go. Well, hey, my name is Jonah. I serve as the missions pastor here at Vista. On behalf of our team, thanks for joining us in worship today, especially if it's your first time here. We're really glad that you're here. Our two lead pastors, Dave and Austin, are on vacation this weekend with their families celebrating Father's Day. And so we're so thankful they get to take rest. And that's why you have me this morning. Uh, but that also means one thing, too, is that since they're gone, there's no rules, um, because it's kind of like when you're when you're in high school and your parents go to town, you, you know, you throw a party, we just have to clean it back, clean it all up before they get back, right? Um, so I'm just kidding. We won't get too crazy. But thank you for letting me come and share this morning with you all. Uh, we also, like Jordan said, today is Father's Day. Um, and so we know that today, that there's kind of two ways that, that Father's Day goes. One is people who, who, for Father's Day, is a hard day. Um, it's a really hard day because of their own father and things that maybe happened in their life. Or maybe it's the first Father's Day without a dad. And so know that if that's you, we, we mourn with you. Um, your church mourns with you, and we know what that feels like. Um, but then, too, we also know Father's Day is a day that we get to celebrate the dads in our church who are doing such an amazing job. And I'll tell you, it is such a privilege to be a part of a church um, that has so many dads that are doing their best that are really trying to do what it means to faithfully raise their kids and love their families well. And so I'll just say, dads at Vista, we see you. And we love you, and we see you trying your best. So can we just give applause for our dads today? (laughs) Amen. Amen. Well, if you've been with us the past couple weeks, you know that we've been working our way through a series that we've called Living the Dream. And this series is about the, the story, the life of this person in the Bible called Joseph. And if you've been with us this far, you know that this living the dream title for the story of Joseph is a bit ironic because he's done really everything besides live any sort of dream. Um, For Joseph, just to recap you, um, if you haven't been here, he's had a lot of um, ups and downs, but honestly mainly downs. At this point in the story, Joseph has been rejected by his brothers, thrown into a pit because of a couple of dreams, sold as a slave, Presumed dead by his father, that he's taken to a foreign land to serve as a slave to people who were not his own people, and he was falsely accused of raping his master's wife. Now, today, he's going to find himself in prison for this crime that he did not commit. And so as I read the Bible and I read passages like this, one thing that I often try to do, a practice that I often try to have for myself, is to take this approach that what if I was reading this passage of Scripture for the very first time? What, what would it look like? If, because I know this story. I've heard it all, you know, growing up, all sorts of things. And so what would, what would my questions be if I was approaching this story for the first time? That's something that for some of us who've grown up in church, it's a little hard to do. But if this was the first time that I was reading Joseph's story, my question would be, when does this guy become the villain? When, when is this guy going to become the villain? Because everything has only gone wrong for him. And, and up to this point in the story, th- there's no reason for us to really think that Joseph has done anything wrong, but everything has only gone wrong for him. And so my question would be, when is Joseph going to become the villain? Because we've got to be honest, after all the terrible things that happened, he's got to be ready some, for some revenge. Right? And so as I reflected on this idea, as I thought about this question, and why am I asking this question? Why am I asking this question of, when is Joseph going to become the villain? And I started to think about it, and I, I thought about how our culture, currently, we're in this moment where we are fascinated by villain stories. We're absolutely fascinated by villain stories. No longer are our movies and shows simply about the struggle between a one-dimensional hero and a one-dimensional villain. But recently, over the past couple years, this entire genre of film and TV has developed that's completely focused on the backstories and understanding the villains and the stories that we all know and love. In fact, the idea of the villain has been changed to this idea of the anti-hero. So no longer are these people called the villain, they're the anti-hero in our stories. So, for example, um, I'm sorry for anyone who's afraid of clowns, but... In 2019, the movie The Joker depicts the backstory of one of Batman's greatest enemies. Except in this take on the story, we're not led um, to to read a story or to understand the, the, the struggle between a hero and a villain. Instead, this story takes the viewer on a journey of great sympathy and understanding for Arthur, the name of the man who would eventually become the Joker. So listen to a short kind of snippet of the synopsis of this movie, The synopsis reads this way. Forever alone in a crowd, failed comedian Arthur Fleck seeks connection as he walks the streets of Gotham City. Arthur wears two masks, the one he paints for his day job as a clown and the guise he projects in a futile attempt to feel like he's part of the world around him. Isolated, bullied, and disregarded by society, Fleck begins a slow descent into madness, as he transforms into the criminal mastermind known as the Joker. This isn't a story about a superhero and an evil genius who's trying to take over the world. This is a story about someone who terrible, terrible things have happened to them and they're acting out of retribution and retaliation for the suffering that they've experienced. So, like, okay, I can understand that one. Well, more recently, the movie Cruella by Disney, there's a, the synopsis reads this way, um, I'm not going to spoil it. If you haven't seen the movie, no spoilers, I promise. You don't have to leave. The synopsis, part of it reads this way Before she becomes Cruella de Vil, teenaged Estella has a dream. She wishes to become a fashion designer, having been gifted with talent, innovation, and ambition, all in equal measures. But life seems intent on making sure her dreams never come true. Having wound up penniless and orphaned in London at 12, four years later, Estella runs wild through the city streets with her best friends and partners in petty crime, Horace and Jasper, two amateur thieves. And so again, this is another story, not of just the battle between good and evil and a hero winning over a villain, but it's a complicated and complex story about someone who's experienced great pain and suffering in their life. And so because of that, they've chosen to act out of that pain and inflict pain and suffering on other people. These stories, among others, about people whose terrible circumstances have led to a corrupted character. And so while these stories don't depict their villainous behavior, they do depict their villainous behavior, they've also given us a vision into their complex and complicated lives. So a 2020 Platform Magazine, it's a platforms an entertainment magazine, there's an article that kind of comments on this fascination. Read this. It says, Our fascination is one that we couldn't predict. Childhood films taught us to root for the hero who ultimately defeats the villain by the end of the film. And despite this, public opinion has shifted, and now the villain is often the fan favorite, with a cult following. Everyone experiences suffering in their life, and villains are no different. We have, it all, we have all, at some point, felt downtrodden by society, or perhaps felt anger at injustice. And so this is such an important point to make that each and every one of us has experienced suffering. Suffering is part of the human condition. This room, this church is full of people who've experienced suffering to one degree or another. We've all felt pain in our lives. There's terrible, terrible things that have happened to every one of us. We're a pained people. And so that has led our culture to understand that the villains and the stories we love are are really no different. They're also pain. They've also experienced suffering. But the article goes on to claim this. Maybe we are fascinated by villains because we want to be like them. We want to retaliate against a world that isn't always kind. Maybe we want to be like the villain. Well, I don't want to be like the villain. No, I don't, you know. And so I don't know, maybe. Maybe some of us want to see Gotham City burned down, but maybe some of us don't. I don't know. Do I really want to be like the villain is kind of this question that I have. But I think we could agree that for most of us, our natural response to affliction is retribution and retaliation. Our natural response to experiencing affliction is retribution and retaliation. And so maybe you say, I don't want to see Gotham City burned down. But I bet you can agree with me here. Um, When you've had a bad experience at a restaurant a bad experience, the food is bad, the service is slow, all that, is your first reaction when you leave to write a blazing Google review? You're just going to light the restaurant up. Is that your first reaction? Or when someone cuts you off in traffic, are you quick to let them know that they're number one? You know what I'm saying? (laughs) Or, this is a good one, when you see a social media post that just gets under your skin, you're just like, burning do your thumbs just start click clacking away in just a blind fit of fury and all of a sudden you find yourself an hour later in a social media argument with your second cousin or somebody from third grade right we when we see things that bother us when we have things that happen to us most of us our natural response is retaliation and retribution in more serious terms studies find that at least a third of people who are abused as children will end up becoming abusers themselves a third of people. Additionally, children of addicts and alcoholics are four times more likely to become addicted to a substance themselves. And that has to do with hereditary things that happen, but also environment and nurture. And I don't say these things to blame people for the bad things that happen to them, and I also don't say them to excuse bad behavior and negative behavior. But we have to agree that each of us act out of our own pain every single day. The verdict is out. Suffering has the propensity to reap destructive behavior. And so back to Joseph, in response to his suffering and affliction, when is he going to become the villain? Because that's where this story is pointed. And so if you'll turn with me in Genesis chapter 40, we'll start in verse 1. We're going to be in Genesis 40 and 41. We're going to do some scripture kinesthetics today. And so hang with me, we're going to be jumping around all over the place. Genesis chapter 40, starting in verse 1. Joseph finds himself now in prison. It's where you pick up for the, being accused of the crime. It says this, Then it came about after these things that the cupbearer and the baker for the king of Egypt offended their lord, the king of Egypt. The king of Egypt is also Pharaoh. And Pharaoh was furious with his two officials, the chief cupbearer and the chief baker. And so he put them in confinement in the house of the captain of the bodyguard in the prison, the same place where Joseph was imprisoned. And the captain of the bodyguard put Joseph in charge of them, and he took care of them. And they were in confinement for some time. And then the cupbearer and the baker for the king of Egypt, who were confined in the prison, both had a dream the same night. Each man with his own dream and each dream with its own interpretation. And so when Joseph came to them in the morning and saw them, behold, they were dejected. And so he asked Pharaoh's officials who were with him in confinement in his master's house, Why are your faces so sad today? And they said to him, We have had a dream, and there's no one to interpret it. And then Joseph said to them, Do interpretations not belong to God? Tell it to me, please. And so we don't know exactly why these guys are in prison. The cupbearer, think of the cupbearer as like the Pharaoh's sommelier, he's the guy who takes care of his wine. And then the baker is, well, a baker. And these guys are in charge of Pharaoh's food. And so the assumption by a lot of scholars is that there was some plot to poison Pharaoh. They weren't sure who did it, and so they put both of these guys in prison. So they find themselves in prison with Joseph. And Joseph essentially becomes their servant, their slave in prison. So Joseph is not just himself in prison, but he's the slave to other prisoners while in prison. But we know from this story that Joseph had compassion on these men. He cared for them. He actually not just served them, but he cared about them. And one morning, they both wake up, and they're stressed out. They're anxious about these dreams they had, and they don't know if it's the prison burritos from the night before, or if it's something else going on. And so they're sad, clearly dejected, and Joseph says, hey, what's, what's going on? And they said, well, we've, we've had this, these dreams and we don't really know what they mean. And so out of compassion for them, Joseph says, well, I have this gift. I can interpret dreams. God has given me this gift. And it makes me think, was, was Joseph not nervous to interpret these dreams? Because at any point before in the story, when Joseph interprets a dream or, or talks about a, a dream that he's had or someone else has had, it hasn't gone well for him at all. It's only led to his demise. But out of his compassion, he listens to these men and their dreams. So we'll pick up verse 13. This is Joseph talking. He listens to the cupbearer's dream. And then he says, verse 13, "...within three more days Pharaoh will lift you, the cupbearer, up your head and restore you to your office, and you will put Pharaoh's cup into his hand as in your former practice when you were his cupbearer. Only keep me in mind, and when it goes well for you, please do me a kindness by mentioning me to Pharaoh and get me out of this prison." For I was in fact kidnapped from the land of the Hebrews, and even here I've done nothing that they should have put me into the dungeon. So how ironic for Joseph that this guy who'd also done nothing wrong was going to be freed, but he was going to stay in prison. And Joseph recognizes this, he says this might be my only shot, so he says, please, for the love of God, the word literally has said there that's used is the kindness, the love of God, can you do me a kindness and ask Pharaoh to release me? talk to Pharaoh, get me out of here. And in the story, this is the first time that Joseph reacts to his situation at all. It's the first time that Joseph even acknowledges that he's been treated wrongly, that something bad has happened to him. And so he asks this guy to help him. And then the other guy, the baker, hears this interpretation. He goes, oh, that was a good dream interpretation. Hey, Joseph, what what about me? Can you hear my dream? And he tells him his dream, and then Basically, Joseph says, it's not going to end good for you. In fact, uh, birds are going to eat the flesh off of your dead body badly. That's how it's going to end for you. You'll have to go back and read the story. We don't have the time to read the whole thing today. It's bad for the other guy, basically. Now, verse 21. He, Pharaoh, who is Pharaoh, restored the chief cupbearer to his office, and he put the cup into Pharaoh's hand. But he hanged the chief baker just as Joseph had interpreted to them. Yet... The chief cupbearer did not remember Joseph, but forgot him. And so even after Joseph had begged the cupbearer to remember him, even after he said, please, for the love of God, out of the Heset of God, please remember me and talk to Pharaoh, three days later, this guy forgets him. He doesn't remember Joseph. And so Joseph is, is left to sit in prison with no end in sight, no light at the end of the tunnel. The entire world seems to be against him. And there's nothing he can do to get out of the situation in which he's done nothing wrong to be there in the first place. Y'all, this is the stuff that villains are made out of. Am I right? And so what's crazy is that Joseph never curses God. He never blames God for his situation. He sits in prison after all these things have happened to him. And there's not a word about him blaming God or being mad at God. And as far as we're led to understand, both his faith and his character remain intact. His character doesn't crumble despite the circumstances that he finds himself in. Now verse, or chapter 41, verse 1. Now it happened at the end of two full years that Pharaoh had a dream. Hold up y'all, two years, Joseph is still sitting in prison two years later. Two years of sitting, looking at the same four walls. Two years of staring at the the walls, two years of time spent stewing in anger toward God and the cupbearer and Potiphar and Potiphar's wife and Pharaoh and Egypt and the universe and anybody else he could be mad at. Two years of time left to sit, and and if it was me, I'd just be stewing in anger. Do you know how many evil plans one could come up with in a matter of two years, sitting in prison? Because I could think of one or two. But the Bible, again, gives us no reason to think that Joseph lost faith or trust that God would redeem him. At no point does it give us any reason to think that. And you might say, well, they left that part out. Because that's not a good part. They left it out. But the Bible is full of people doubting and complaining and blaming God for terrible things that have happened to them. The Bible's full of it. Exodus, Numbers, Psalms, these books of the Bible are full of people complaining and blaming God. Lamentations is an entire book devoted to someone lamenting, complaining toward God about the things that have happened to them, and so I don't think they left that part out about Joseph not blaming or or being mad at God. They didn't leave that out. No, no, no. I think, I think what they wrote though, kind of gives us a direction of where things are going. Forty-one, verse one said, "At the end of two full years, Pharaoh had a dream." Well, we know where this is going. He's going to go and have to stand before Pharaoh and he's probably going to interpret a dream and never before has this gone well for him. And so you know he's going to stand in front of Pharaoh and he's, God gave me this gift and I'm supposed to interpret a dream and he can only imagine what's going to happen for him. Chapter 41, verse 8. Now in the morning, his Pharaoh's spirit was troubled and so he sent messengers and called for all the soothsayers of Egypt and all its wise men. And Pharaoh told them his dreams. But there was no one who could interpret them for Pharaoh. And then the chief cupbearer spoke to Pharaoh, saying, I would make mention today of my own offenses. Pharaoh was furious with his servants, and he put me in confinement in the house of the captain of the bodyguard, both me and the chief baker. And then we had a dream one night. He and I, each of us dreamed according to the interpretation of his own dream. Now a Hebrew youth was there with us, a servant of the captain of the bodyguard, and we told him the dreams that he interpreted we told him our dreams and he interpreted our dreams for us for each man he interpreted according to his own dream and just as he interpreted for us so it happened pharaoh restored me in my office but he hanged the chief cupbearer and so pharaoh says i got to meet this guy i got to meet this guy that can interpret dreams and joseph was brought before him to interpret the dream now remember joseph has not interpreted a dream that has gone well for him yet and so you can only imagine how he feels coming before pharaoh but he's brought before Pharaoh to listen to this dream because he claims he has an ability, by God, by, uh, an ability given to him by God to do so. And so things don't seem as if they're going to go well for Joseph at this point in the story. We say this is the villain moment. This is where it's all going to go bad. But Pharaoh shares his dream, and things take a major turn. Joseph listens to the dream, and he tells Pharaoh that there's about to be seven years of abundance followed by seven years of famine, that things were going to go really good for Egypt, and then they're going to go really bad. And so it was important that Pharaoh prepare for this time so that there was food for the people to eat. And so Joseph creates this plan and he tells Pharaoh, this is what you should do. Then verse 38, Pharaoh says this. Pharaoh said to his servants, can we find a man like this in whom there is a divine spirit? And so Pharaoh said to Joseph, since God has informed you of all of this, there is no one as discerning and wise as you are. You shall be in charge of my house and all my people shall be obedient to you. Only regarding the throne will I be greater than you. Pharaoh also said to Joseph, See, I have placed you over all the land of Egypt. And then Pharaoh took off his signet ring from his hand, and he put it on Joseph's hand, and clothed him in garments of fine linen, and put the gold necklace around his neck. And he had him ride in his second chariot, and they proclaimed ahead of him, Bow the knee, and he placed him over all of the land of Egypt. And so Pharaoh interpreted, Joseph interprets this dream for Pharaoh, and then Pharaoh says, you're going to be the number two guy. You're going to be over all of Egypt, and you're going to enact this plan to save our people, to save our nation, to save Egypt. And so Joseph's story took this wild and crazy twist and turn. And and so we know that Joseph chose faithfulness to God and compassion toward others when his character was tested. When he was under suffering and struggle, he turned and he chose faithfulness to God. And so what does that tell us today? Is that when suffering tests our character, our call is to a patient pursuit of faithfulness. When suffering tests our character, our call is to a patient pursuit of faithfulness. When Joseph's suffering, time and time again, tested his character, he didn't grow bitter or angry or full of blame. The story gives us no reason to think that. He didn't live with a chip on his shoulder or do pain to others because of the things that happened to him. Instead, his story is one that shows his patient pursuit of faithfulness to God. Joseph was convinced that God would eventually set everything right despite what had happened to him. And as I read Joseph's story this week, I was reminded of a passage from 1 Peter, in which Peter is writing to some of the first Christians. He says this in 1 Peter 3, For it's better if it is God's will to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. He was put to death in the body but made alive in the spirit. And so when the world has treated me unkindly, and when I have every reason to lash out as a villain because of the suffering that I've experienced, when I have a bone to pick with God because of how things have gone for me, I have to remember this. Jesus also suffered once for sins that he didn't commit. And he did so to bring us, to bring me to God. Jesus suffered for sins that he didn't commit to bring us to God. And so as a people who are striving to follow the way of Jesus, in a world that tempts us to become the villain, our call is to live like Jesus. And so when suffering tests our character, our call is to patient faithfulness, to a patient pursuit of faithfulness. And so how do we shape a life that forms us into patient, faithful people of God? I have two ideas for this. First is that at Vista, we call our church to submit to a rule of life. And a rule of life is a set of four daily and four weekly habits that shape you into a patient follower of Jesus. We practice the rule of life because we realize that making faith up as we go along, it it never actually works. And so the rule of life shapes us into patient followers of Jesus. In a chaotic world that tempts us to become the villain, we need a structure to guide us and help us think about our faith. And so the rule of life is a model, is a rhythm for doing that. So, for example, the rule of life calls calls us to pray— three times a day, in the morning, midday, and the evening. In the morning, we accept our belovedness in Christ, and we say we have nothing to lose and nothing to gain but more Christ-likeness. It is a rhythm that reminds us to be patient and to be faithful to who God is making us to be. It's a structure literally designed to slow us down, and so when our circumstances test our character, a rule of life helps to form us into people who are deeply rooted in a life of faith. The rule of life will help shape us into patient followers of Jesus. And so on your way out today, we have bookmarks that you can grab that help guide you through that. It's also available on our app. So the rule of life, making us patient followers of Jesus. Second, when our character is tested and we seek to live in faithfulness and patience, one of the best things we can do is live in compassion toward others. When our life is crumbling, when we are suffering, one of the most faithful things we can do is live with compassion toward other people. Think about Joseph sitting in prison dealing with suffering and anxiety of his own, the the suffering that he experienced, but he still had compassion on the other people in prison alongside of him because he was patiently faithful in who God was, and, and he trusted that God was going to redeem him. And so when we've been wronged, and we've been treated badly, and when everything in the world tells us that, oh, you have the right to be the villain, no, no, our call is to live in compassion toward others around us, because true compassionate love has this powerful way of making something beautiful out of suffering, right? And so as we seek to live, who are people who are following the way of Jesus in in the world today, we know that when suffering tests our character, our call is to a patient pursuit of faithfulness. So in the world that attempts to make us into the villain, it tells us we ought to become the villain, we know that our hope in Jesus is what gives us the ability to be patient disciples. And to patiently wait for God. And so as we finish today, I would love for us each um, together, we're going to read the Serenity Prayer. The Serenity Prayer is made famous by Alcohol and Narcotics Anonymous. And it's a prayer that's said um, by people around the world in churches and basements and prisons and office buildings as people themselves acknowledge the suffering they've experienced, but they trust that they are being made into patient and faithful followers of Jesus. And so this morning, we're going to say this together as a church to end our time together if I surrender to your will, so that I may be reasonably happy in this life and supremely happy with you forever in the next. Amen. Let's reflect on that this morning.